beginning a, a new series today. Um, and I think it, it, it's befitting to start with this, this passage from James. And you don't need to turn there. But if you do have a Bible, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 14. That's where we're going to be going this morning. But do we have that passage from James? Yes? No? Maybe so? Anyway, James chapter 2 says this. One, one back. There we go. Will you read this with me? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The thing about that James verse there is he doesn't say, hey, if you face trials of many kinds, allow it to get... What does he say? Whenever. And I think that's a very crucial word. Because I know for myself, sometimes I'm surprised when, when life is difficult. Sometimes I'm surprised when my little boy gets sick. Or, you know, my wife and I have a fight. Or I'm just, you know, frustrated. Or, or, or if there's not enough money in the bank and I'm going, how am I going to pay this bill? Or whatever it is. And I'm surprised. But the reality is, we live in a broken world. And Abraham Lincoln is quoted as saying, you know, I, I have learned that I can learn something from every person that I meet, if only what not to do. And the reality is, we're not the first people to encounter life in a broken world. There have been a lot of people that have gone before us. And if we don't learn from, from people who have gone before us, then we're pretty much doomed to make the same mistakes that they do. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a people who are very familiar with desert seasons in their life. They had a pretty prolonged desert experience. And we're going to take a look at the way that they responded, if only to learn from them so that we can avoid making those same mistakes. So turn to Exodus chapter 14. We're beginning, by the way, a new series today called Walking with God in the Desert that's going to be solely focused on when life doesn't go the way that we planned it when we kind of hit that wall or we're just kind of at the end of our own abilities, which can happen pretty often, what then? How do we respond? Why, God? Why would you allow me to experience this? Those are the kind of questions that we're going to wrestle with over the course of this next month. Um, in Exodus, we see a people, the Israelites, a people that were a small nation but were chosen by God. And he said, you guys are going to be my people. Well, the problem was they were living in captivity in Egypt. Under the thumb of a guy named Pharaoh, they were slave labor. And God decides, I'm going to take my people out of slavery. And so he, he calls this guy Moses. A little insecure, a little bit of a stutterer. And he goes, you know, Moses, you are going to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the known world, and you're going to tell him to let my people go. And Moses is like, ah, I'm not your guy. Okay, this is not... Yes, you are my guy. Go and tell Pharaoh, and I will be with you. And so Moses finally kind of scrapes up the courage, and he goes and he stands before Pharaoh, and he says, Listen, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, declares to let his people go. And Pharaoh says, I'm sorry, but I'm not about to let my free labor go anywhere. And so God begins to level plagues 
Ten of them in total. Each one, if you look into it, attacking a different Egyptian god. Basically declaring, listen, I'm God, this is not. Ra, the sun god, you worship him, I'm going to blot the sun out of the sky. The only place it's going to shine is over Goshen, the land where my people reside. You worship the Nile River and the gods there because this is the lifeline of your nation. I'm going to turn the Nile into blood. I'm going to bring plagues of locusts. I'm going to bring plagues of frogs. Hail. And then finally, I'm going to send an angel who's going to walk through the land and he is going to kill every firstborn, both animal and human child. The only ones I will spare are the ones who have marked their doors and lintels with the blood of a perfect spotless lamb, declaring that this house is under the protection of Yahweh. And that's what he does. And he sends the angel through the land. And the Israelites heard the wailing of the Egyptians. And this was the straw that broke Pharaoh's resolve. And he finally says, fine, take your people and go. But God also says to the people, hey, before you leave, go to your neighbors and ask them for articles of silver and gold so you can worship your God. So not only do these Israelites who have been in captivity and bondage for their entire natural lives, not only are they able to walk out in the light of day from captivity in full view of their captors, but God literally brings them to plunder their captors and then has them walk out of Can you imagine how they're feeling? All they've ever known is slavery. And now they're walking out of their bondage in broad daylight, having just taken, plundered the Egyptians. I I imagine that there's probably a little bit of trepidation, like, are they going to change their minds here? And where are we going? You know, what's in front of us? But there's also got to be excitement. Did you see the way that God has fought for us? And so they march out. And in Exodus chapter 14, verse 5, we pick up the story now. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. In other words, all of our free labor gone? Yeah, you know what? Maybe this wasn't a good idea. Let's go get them back. And so Pharaoh drums up his best his entire army. Not only does he get all of his chariots and, and, and his legionnaires, but he gets all of his troops musters them all and he sends them out to bring the Israelites back. Verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And, surprisingly, they were terrified. And they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? What have we done, what have we done to us to bring us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. It doesn't matter that God has just miraculously brought them out. All they can see right now is this army descending upon them. And they look at their feeble army that they can kind of try to resist, and they go, there's no way we could possibly stand against the most powerful army in the known world. We're toast doesn't matter that God has been fighting for us up to this point. We're done. Why have you done this to us? Moses answered, verse 13, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. 
the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And that's exactly what happens. Because God, which has been marching before them as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, moves between the Egyptian army and the Israelites, kind of blocking them from being able to attack. And then he, he commands Moses to part the, the Red Sea. And so Moses goes and stands before the sea, and God miraculously begins to blow and separate the waters so that the Israelites are able to walk through on dry ground through the water. And no sooner are they on the other side that God lifts the cloud and the Egyptians start to chase after them. But as they're walking through this massive canyon between the waters, God begins to frustrate the army and the, the, the chariot wheels are coming off and people are getting stuck in the mud and it's just everything's going crazy. And then he brings the waters down upon the army and decimates the most powerful army in the world in front of the Israelites without them having to lift a finger. And what hours before seemed like sure death and they were, they were saying, God, why have you done this? Why have you, why have you let us here to die? It would have been better to stay back there. All of a sudden this moment becomes perhaps one of the greatest moments for the Israelites' national identity. This was a time that they can point back to over and over and over again in their history and say, look it, God fought for us. God redeemed us out of the mouth of the snare. Literally, we were moments from absolute annihilation. And our God fought for us. Do you think in that moment the Israelites trusted their God this is interactive. Do you? Okay, good. <laughs> For a minute there, I thought I'd put you to sleep. And over the course of the next chapter, chapter 15, you see the Israelites just crying out in song, thanking God for his faithfulness. You have been good. You have redeemed us and all of those kind of things, which is great because their trust in their God has just moved up exponentially. But life goes on. And they're still in the wilderness. They're still in the desert. And they're going to encounter other problems. And it's interesting to see how they respond. Go to chapter 16. Right on the heels of watching Yahweh decimate an army without them having to lift a single hand or losing a single person, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin. I think that's somewhere in Arizona. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, verse 2, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Wait a minute. Why did God bring the Israelites out of slavery? Well, part of it was because they were, they were crying out to him to save them. They were enslaved. But now as they're in the desert, and you guys get this, this is human nature. When you're in the midst of something and it seems overwhelming and you look back to where you were and you're like, why couldn't we just be there? I'd much rather be back there. It was so much more comfortable than where I am now. God, why'd you do this? And they begin to grumble against him. God says, listen, I will provide for you. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. In other words, I want them to wake up in the morning and I want them to go out and they're going to find that there will be bread, manna on the ground. I want them to collect only enough for that day. That night, I'm going to bring quail. 
and I'll provide meat for them. But I want them only to gather and eat enough for that night. When they go to bed, I don't want them to have a single scrap of food in their tent. Why? So that they are forced every single night that they're in the desert to trust my provision. And every single morning that they woke up, guess what they found? God's provision, manna. Every morning. And so over the course of the time that they're in the wilderness, God is constantly providing just in time what they need. A constant reminder that God is with them. He hasn't left them. Their clothes don't wear out. He is providing what they need. Now, it may not necessarily be on their time frame, but he's providing what they need. Go to chapter 17. I mean, at this point, the Israelites must get it, right? They must be like, hey, our God is with us. Who could be ever against us? We're good. Verse 17. I'm sorry, chapter, chapter 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. And they camped near Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. And water, especially when you're in the desert, is an important thing. So they quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord God to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? You see in a pattern here? It's like, okay, we see what you've done, God. Thank you. We trust you. We love you. Oh, now there's, now there's this new obstacle and you completely forget about what's come before. You know, as things are good, when we really don't need to trust in God because our own abilities can kind of provide for ourselves, that's when we'll declare our trust. But the moment that we're forced to trust in you, the moment that we don't see the solution, suddenly our resolve crumbles and we begin to question God's goodness. We begin to question whether God is really capable of providing what we need. I'm really glad that we're nothing like them, right? That this is not our tendency. But the reality is, I mean, I find myself doing exactly the same thing. When I'm not forced to rely on God, I have absolutely no problem declaring my trust in Him. But the moment that my world is shaken, suddenly the why questions become, come to the forefront. Why, God? Why did you let this happen? Why, why would you, what have I done wrong, right? Because that's the next question we ask. What have I done wrong to bring this upon myself? This isn't fair. Don't you love me? Don't you see what's going on? Have, have you just abandoned me altogether? Why are we going through this again? You know, it's interesting, those, those why questions. And the, at least I know, I'll speak for myself. When I'm asking those kind of questions, it reveals in me some of the natural assumptions I have about God. And the thing about the wilderness wanderings is they often bring to the forefront the faultiness of those assumptions. Here, I'm going to just focus on two this morning. The first faulty assumption we tend to have about God that is exposed when we're walking through the wilderness is that God cares primarily for our comfort. God is not primarily concerned with our comfort. And I think all of us would probably be able to agree intellectually. Yes, God is more concerned with our comfort, or I'm sorry, more concerned with our character than our comfort. We have no problem saying that intellectually. But when the rubber meets the road and we're actually in a, in a season of dryness, when, when, our, when our stomachs are hungry, that first moment where we feel the parched throats and we have no water with us, 
Or we see the dust cloud that is a portent that there's an army over the hill and we don't have a clue how we're going to be able to overcome them. At that point, we're like, what the heck, God? Don't you care about me? Where are you? What are you doing? Why are you letting this happen? Are you there? And then we start rushing after anything and everything else that might be able to give us security in the midst of it. And I find it so interesting that we think that God is really concerned about our comfort because so much of what I read in Scripture is just the opposite. I mean, the one that I point to all the time, Jesus saying to his disciples, listen, in this world, you're going to have trouble, okay? It's not going to be easy for you. But take heart because this world isn't all there is. And this life isn't all there is. And I have overcome the world. I've overcome the brokenness, even in the midst of it. But even if this trial should lead to death, don't worry about it because death doesn't get the last word. And so the first faulty assumption that we have is that God is primarily concerned with our comfort and he's not. But the second faulty assumption, and this one I think is a little bit more insidious, and this one is definitely an American symptom. And that is this. We believe that God is a tit-for-tat, you-scratch-my-back-I'll-scratch-your-back kind of God. That he will return to us what we do to him. And so therefore, we have the ability to control his actions by what we do. You ever notice this? This, this mindset that when I'm messing up, I'm kind of like, okay, God is going to slap me down. And I just, I'm just expecting to be cursed. But when I'm doing good things, the expectation is what? He's going to bless me. He's going to pour down blessing upon me and it should go good. So, so, you know, conversely, when things are going bad, my first assumption is, what have I done wrong? Why are you punishing me? Or when things are going well, I'm go- or, you know, I have an expectation. When I do good things, bless me. It's kind of like, do you guys remember the movie Goonies? Okay, I wanted to get this clip, but we don't have time for it. Um, and I couldn't find a copy of the movie. Seriously, people invest in Goonies so that next time I want to use it, I can call you and you can get me the DVD. All right, moving on. Um, in the movie Goonies, the kids are moving through these tunnels and they come to this one room and there's this big organ made out of bones. You guys remember that? Okay, and that they, now they have to play the bones. And there's some chords that they find on their map. And here's the thing with the organ. When they play the right chord, what happens? You guys don't remember, do you? Okay, when you play the right chord, there's a door and the door opens just a little bit. So every time they play the right chord, the door opens just a little bit. And this door is the door to their salvation. If they can get through that door, they can get away from the enemies that are chasing them. But not only that, there's untold riches on the other side of that door. All they have to do is get through it, right? And in order to get through it, all they have to do is play the right chords. But every time they play the wrong chord, what happens? The ground literally drops out from under them. And so they've got different patches of this room beginning to just fall away as they're playing the wrong chords. What the heck does that have to do with God? Well, isn't that what we do to God? We turn him into some passive thing, some passive celestial force. And all we have to do is do the right things and he'll not only save us, but he'll bless us with material wealth and happiness and all those kind of things that the world holds up as the most important things. But if we do wrong, the world is going to fall out from under us and we are going to be hurt. But do you see what that makes God into? a cosmic vending machine. And we are the ones who can control him. It places us in a position of authority over God. 
And ladies and gentlemen, that's just absolutely theologically wrong. We do not have the ability to control God. He's God. We are not. And so when we approach him thinking, all I have to do are the right things and he'll protect me from discomfort, he'll protect me from sickness, he'll protect me from needing money because I'll have enough of it, we're basically saying that God cares about the American dream, perhaps even that he is the author of the American dream and he's the underwriter of the American dream and he's going to make sure that we are happy, wealthy, successful, and healthy. And I just, that is not God's dream for us. You know, a year ago, Kathy and I were thrust very unexpectedly into our own wilderness wanderings. And this, this is one that you guys are pretty familiar with. Because a year ago, this last Wednesday, we were about six months into our third pregnancy. Now we have one son and we had a miscarriage. Um, so this pregnancy, because it was on the heels of a miscarriage, we were just, we were praying constantly, God, have your way with this baby. God, please protect him. We, we were praying for that perfect baby. We really meant, you know, we don't care what sex it is, so long as it's a healthy, happy baby. And six months in, everything was going well. As it should be, right? Because we're good Christian people. We're, you know, praying and all this kind of, we're doing all the right stuff. I'm a pastor. Absolutely, God should be blessing us. Well, a year ago on Wednesday night, my, my wife's water broke really prematurely, 13 weeks prematurely. And I you remember, you know how like when you go through a traumatic experience, it's almost like that moment gets burned into your mind. I remember the look of absolute abject fear in my girl's eyes as she realized that something was very, very wrong. And, and I remember carrying her out to the car and just racing. Both of my boys decided that they wanted to come at like midnight. So we're racing down the freeway, completely dark out, very few cars. It was, it was one of these interesting things where outside it's pretty serene and calm and quiet, and inside my world is in disarray. And we get to the hospital, and the hospital realizes, oh my goodness, this is really happening, and we're not equipped to handle a child born as prematurely as it looks like this one's going to be born. So they ship us up to another hospital, up in Anaheim. And the doctors were able to stabilize my girl. And for the next two weeks, it's almost like our world went back to a sort of weird normal. We we're figuring it out. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so this is God's bump. This is going to be something that we'll be able to glorify him with, but we're past it. We're past the hard stuff. And we're going to be able to, you know, the next couple of months of having her on bed rest is going to be tough, but we'll be good. And God's going to be glorified through this. You guys know the story, some of you, because you walked through this with us. Eleven weeks before Grayson was due to be born, we had a, a routine um, sonogram. And the doctor said, I don't see any movement going on in there. And it's been like 20 minutes. He should be been moving. Let's give it another 10 minutes. 10 minutes turns into 20 more minutes. It's now been 40 minutes. There's no movement. Something's really wrong. We need to bring him out. So we went into an emergency C-section. And this beautifully tiny baby, three pounds when he was born, although he would drop down to about two pounds, 12 ounces before all things were said and done. Hi, Grayson. born and I look at this child and I go he's beautiful and he's perfect totally didn't expect it to come this early but all things should be good right 
And yet over the next 48 hours, our already chaotic world descended even further because he had not only pneumonia, but his, his sickness had, had gone all the way into his spinal column and into his spinal fluid. And because he had pneumonia, when they tried to respirate him, only one lung inflated and, and the, the pressure popped it and his lung collapsed. And his chest cavity began to fill with oxygen, so they had to do an emergency surgery and put his tube in to leak out some of that oxygen so his lung could reinflate. And then it happened again another day after that. And they had to do another emergency surgery. And all of this going on, he's now anemic, and they're saying, well, he might have a bleed in his brain, which happens with children born this prematurely. And you, as a father who is, is used to being able to protect and provide for his kids, I'm watching my little boy this teeny tiny little boy covered in monitors and covered in, in wires and tubes and breathing apparatus and I can't even pick him up. I can't shield him from the garish light in the room or the, the nurses that are talking too loudly for my taste or the couples who are with their babies just another room over who are talking too loudly to their babies and I just wanted to protect him from the world and I couldn't even touch him. Because at that age, to even touch him is interpreted as pain for kids. So I'm like, your daddy's here. And I felt so unbelievably out of control in ways that I have never felt in my life and hope to never feel again. And in that moment, it was so natural for me to go, God, why? What have I done wrong? What have we done to deserve this? Again, those natural expectations that... God is a you scratch my back, I scratch yours. If you mess up, I'm going to punish you or punish your kid. But if you do right, I'm going to bless you and you'll never have to go through something like this. And that's just not the reality of this world. And in the midst of this wilderness season, we had so many of you come alongside of us and walk with us. And I just want to say thank you for the ways that you as a church family cared for us and loved us. And as I was thinking about that, I, I just went back to one of the journal entries. I, I was journaling a lot during this time. And I, I'm going to close by reading just a section of one of my journal entries. This was a, written about 45 days after Grayson was born. Things really stabilized and he began to grow. He began to be able to breathe on his own after about a month and a half. And I remember writing this. As I look back on the last month and a half of Grayson's life, as I survey the broken path that our family has limped down, what looks so dark and foreboding takes on an unexpected sweetness in hindsight. I think of the doctors and nurses that have become more than attendants. They've become friends and prayer warriors along with us. I think of our family and our friends, many of whom are seated here today, who have supported us all along the way helped us shoulder our emotional and physical burdens, and have lifted our son and our family up in prayer throughout. I think of the way I celebrate what we have taken for granted with Ethan, our firstborn, that Grayson can breathe on his own, that his ears and his eyes are developing normally, that he can actually drink milk, that he continues to grow gram by gram, ounce by ounce, <laughs> and now pound by pound for those of you who have seen him. <laughs> But just, just as a praise report, my boy, for the last two months, he's not even a year old yet, for the last two months he's been wearing clothes that Ethan got for his one-year birthday. He's massive. 
And I think of the way that Grayson's story and God's faithfulness in the midst of the complications has reminded me and others that the goal of life isn't about becoming more comfortable and safe. I have become increasingly convinced that the purpose of life is to grow ever more intimately familiar with my Creator and to learn how to walk with Him and to live a life that reflects His heart and love to a world that would rather deny His existence. Though I wouldn't have chosen the path we've taken over these last couple of months, though I would have preferred to avoid the emotional stress it's placed on my family and loved ones, I cannot help but admit that it has drawn me much deeper into the arms of my Father God. I've learned to see the beauty in the broken path we've journeyed down. I've learned to celebrate the little blessings that we so often take for granted. And I've learned that oftentimes my definition of perfection isn't God's definition. Because as I look into my son's deep blue eyes, which are processing light months before they were designed to, And as I hold his tiny hands and I watch his chest rise and fall in spite of the abuse his lungs have taken over the first 45 days of his premature life, I see a gift from God that goes beyond the birth of my second son. I see a growing, breathing testimony to God's grace. I see a living reminder that what the world holds up as perfection is often nothing more than the easy, comfortable track that allows us to stay self-reliant. So no, my son may not be what we'd expected throughout his gestation, but he is the perfect gift from a loving God who cares far more about our character and spiritual maturity than he does our comfort. And I thank God for the broken path he allowed us to travel down because it has impelled us to lean into him rather than rest in our own self-sufficiency. So thank you, Father, for Grayson. May you continue to have your way with him. Uh, in about two weeks, Kathy and I um, are going to celebrate Grayson's first birthday. And we thought it was fitting that this would be a celebration of his life, of life at all. Because we weren't promised him, and we could never expect to have even brought him home. And God has been very faithful to give us to him, but I will say this. Even if he had taken Grayson in the hospital, I hope I could stand before you and say, I thank God for my boy. I thank you for the gift of that. And I trust him in spite of the broken path he's led us down. And so as as our family who has supported us through this last year, we want to invite you. Just extend the invitation to go to a one-year-old's birthday party. Um, If you're interested... There's a sign-up sheet in the back, and I will email you the evite just so we know how to, you know, how many, uh, how much food to prepare and stuff like that. But you're you're invited because you're our family and you've walked with us, and we just want to celebrate and thank God for this. But let me just say this as I as I close. Two things that I think we can take away from the reminder from the Israelites. Two things that we can learn from that. First off, God is not primarily concerned with our comfort. He wants to grow and mold us into men and women who can walk alongside other hurting people who have very little hope. And I've found that in my own life, 
the seasons of greatest growth have happened in those seasons of greatest trial because it's in those moments that I kind of come to the end of my own abilities and I am forced to rely on God. And it's amazing what happens. I find that He's actually there for me. And so perhaps in these seasons, rather than asking when, when, when hard things happen, rather than asking, why God? Why me? Perhaps we should be asking, well, why not me? Why, why do I think that I should be immune to this comfort? Why do I think that I should be immune to the brokenness of this world? This world isn't our home. And this isn't all there is. But the second thing that I want to just kind of pull out of this is that when those difficult seasons come and we're left thinking that God has abandoned us, that He doesn't care that he's moved away from us. I suspect that it's in those seasons where God is actually inviting us into a deeper, intimate relationship with him. Rather than having abandoned us, God is actually moving closer and saying, I want you to learn that you can trust me. And that the things that you've looked at in this world as being necessary for your safety and for your provision, you don't need them. I am here with you. I am enough. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to explore some of those a little bit deeper. But for now, let's just, um, let's just rest in the reminder that God is bigger than anything that we will ever encounter. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, I pray that we can learn from the example of the Israelites. Now, although they've done a lot of really good things and we celebrate the ways that you have redeemed a nation out of slavery, God, we recognize in ourselves the same tendency to trust our own abilities and to trust you only so long as we don't actually have to depend on you. But the moment that we need to, our trust in you withers. God, many of us are in the midst of desert seasons. Many of us are, are, are in the process of exhausting all of our own attempts to save ourselves from this. And I pray that before we have to get rock bottom, before we look to you, I pray that you would simply remind us that you are here and that you love us. And that we would cast our burdens upon you. Would you have your way with us, God? Amen.